Good morning, everyone. Uh, sorry for the uh, slightly delayed uh, start. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds and uh, welcome to uh, Dr. Yorns and Dr. Aksadi, who will be uh, presenting today. Uh, just a couple of uh, brief announcements. I think we're on a good path with uh, COVID-19. And at the press briefing, the governor uh, yesterday said that they will actually soon stop daily reporting of the COVID-19 numbers, which is uh, good news in the sense that we're on the path to, to full recovery. And uh, the, the yesterday was the, uh, the the third day that we had a positivity of less than 1%. The other thing which is really impressive is 93% of those over the age of 65 have received vaccinations. And, uh, and what was really impressive to me is that 56% of those 16 to 18 years of age have been vaccinated. In fact, they're beating the 18 to 24 year olds and the 25 to 34 year olds. So, so way to go for those uh, uh, young adolescents or, or teenagers that are really getting uh, through. And 12 to 15 years, 27% of those have been vaccinated. Uh, we won't have a, uh, an update this Friday. We're giving John the, the holiday break and all of you also the holiday break to uh, celebrate Memorial Weekend. And then we will uh, re resume uh, uh, at a later date uh, on Tuesday. We'll come back for Grand Rounds. And then uh, on, and then next uh, uh, June 4th, we'll have the Joint Pediatric Symposium, which is going to be really, really good uh, with our colleagues uh, out, 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 out west. And so welcome to Grand Rounds. I'm going to ask Dr. Aksadi to introduce Dr. Yorns, and then we'll get going with our Grand Rounds. Jula? Good morning. Uh, I'm really happy to introduce uh, Dr. William Yours, he just like to be called Billy, who is an assistant professor and he has been with our department for about uh, two years now. He mainly uh, uh, practicing in our Denbury site. Um, Billy actually is a local uh, a person. He uh, went to undergraduate um, at Trinity College. Then he um, went to um, um, f f um, the medical school uh, uh, osteopathic uh, medical school in Philadelphia, where he uh, graduated, then came back and actually he did his pediatric residency here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, followed by that, he went to the Draxta uh, program and did a pediatric neurology and electrophysiology fellowship. Uh, Billy is an excellent clinician and uh, um, um, he uh, sees a lot of patients uh, in Danbury. He's uh, ready to see your uh, consults, and he's interested in particularly movement disorders, and he's uh, um, uh, working on setting up a movement disorder clinic uh, at, at our site. Uh, he, his talk uh, is uh, on uh, pediatric movement disorders. Um, again, they're really delighted uh, to have him here, um, Billy. Thank you very much, Jula. I'm going to um, share my screen now. Share and present. There we go. Okay. So, um, hi, everybody. Uh, you know, most of that, uh, Jula took care of the intro there. I want to say, actually, while I was at Trinity, right around the corner, I did a health fellows program uh, in undergrad and uh, shadowed Dr. DeMario way, way back now. And uh, so I was a neuroscience major. I've always been interested in this stuff and it's kind of coming back home to be here at CCMC. It's been great. Uh, I don't get to see everybody as much as I like. Well, one, because of COVID and two, because I'm in Danbury uh, where uh, I live, but uh, I am coming into the hospital this weekend. So if anybody's in the hospital, you should see me there. 
Today, I'm talking about uh, hyperkinetic movement disorders in childhood. Uh, I'm starting up a movement disorder center to have a good referral stream for people to uh, help treat their patients uh, that have a variety of different movement disorders. Uh, I have no disclosures today, uh, no financial interests, any pictures, videos, or references. They're all open access, or I have consent, or they've been cited in the bibliography. Uh, which I have at the end. And as you can see, um, my Mr. Bean meme, I usually like to have little funny videos and clips. And uh, I think it's better for the visuals anyway than just hearing me talk the entire time. Uh, the learning objectives today, uh, I'm going to give the general categories of hyperkinetic movement disorders, describe some of the defining characteristics. Uh, I'll differentiate um, the diagnostic testing and prognosis of a few of them, and then recall some of these treatments um, and evidence-based therapies. I'll try to hit a few other uh, things along the way. It'll be a little bit quicker uh, when I move through, so try to keep up. Uh, so the approach when you have a hyperkinetic movement disorder uh, first, you must recognize that it's a movement disorder, and then you should try to classify it by location, distribution, the speed of how they're moving, the amplitude of the movements. Is it rhythmic? Is it repetitive? And how long is it happening? Is it a quick burst? Does it last a long time? And then you kind of develop a differential based on these things. And as I mentioned, Trinity before, this here is my roommate from Trinity for four years. I was with him and his daughter doing a TikTok. And I love to embarrass him uh, putting that on my talks. <laughs> um, so this is an old way of categorizing the movement disorders. Uh, it was done by Jankovic uh, over 20 years ago now. And we still use this breakdown for the most part. Um, you have pyramidal syndromes, which is more spasticity, basal ganglia disorders, which we will focus on more today, and then cerebellar disorders, which are ataxia and coordination. And then with the basal ganglia, you have hypokinetic, hyperkinetic, and then some miscellaneous motor sensory. Now, the hypokinetic and uh, coordination disorders, I'm not going to go through today. Uh, it's another talk. Um, with ataxia, Parkinsonism, akinesia, bradykinesia, akesthesia, dysmetria, all of these we won't really touch upon. Today, we're going to be talking about um, the hyperkinetic movement disorders, which are uh, tics, stereotypies, chorea, athetosis, embolism, dystonia, myoclonus, and tremor. And I'm going to try to touch a little bit on, on each of these. And this is the way we sort of uh, classify if we have uh, the location, it can kind of be in any distribution, but there are a variety of different looks to these movements of where they are. Uh, are they high velocity uh, or low velocity, low amplitude, high amplitude? Are they repetitive? Are they rhythmic? And then what's associated with it? Such as with tics, you get a, an urge, a promontory urge, and they can be suppressible. Whereas uh, my clonus isn't as much suppressible and you don't really have an urge. So it, these questions are very important in determining which type of movement disorder you're looking at. 
So I'm going to go through a case. Uh, I have a few cases. This is number one of uh, AS, an 11-year-old male. Uh, he complained of new onset twitching of his fingers. Uh, he had a past history of ADHD and he had sleep problems and was grinding his teeth. However, two months before presentation to me, he started finger movements that he just had to do over and over and over again, same finger movements. He gets a feeling like they are webbed and he needs to stretch them out. Uh, and then he'll stretch them out and it'll be over and it'll go away until he gets another urge to do that. He can suppress it if he wants to, uh, but when he does, he usually gets the feeling before to move his fingers more and more and more. Uh, five days before the appointment, oh, uh, after that, he had a, a twitch of his neck where he would put his chin down and then out like that over and over again. And five days prior to the appointment, he then developed, in addition, a facial stretch where he looked like a big fake smile that he would do for a second or two. They're all quick, short duration, repetitive, but not rhythmic and stereotyped. He doesn't notice them all the time when he's doing them, uh, but when he does notice them, they bother him. The family denies any prior infection or stressor or head injury beforehand. He's generally a good sleeper uh, because mom is a bit militant about it, um, but he has had some trouble in the past and had the sleep bruxism. Uh, he generally eats healthy, loves Mountain Dew though, which is a whole different talk. Uh, exercise level is low. He tried sports, doesn't really like them. He's a pretty laid back kid. And before he came to me, the PCP did a CBC, CMP, Lyme, ASO, SED rate, CRP, and thyroid. All of those were normal. So they came into me. Now I've got a video. This is not my patient, but it's uh, similar to one of the movements he was making. And what you'll see is a repetitive movement of his face and neck over and over again through the course of the day. That he would do this over and over and over and over and over again. Now, what this patient was having was a transient tic disorder. These are an involuntary repetitive stereotype movements that occur many times in the day, hundreds of times in the day even. Uh, now, the tics over time can change location, duration, frequency, complexity, severity. So it will wax and wane and change over time. And that's pretty textbook for tics. Uh, many kids will have an urge, a prominatory urge beforehand, which is a sensation or feeling, uh, usually unpleasant, that is released when you do the particular movement or noise or whatever the tick is. Um, now, exacerbations can occur after forced suppression. So you have somebody that's uh, sitting in church and can't make a peep or a movement, uh, and then afterwards, it's like the floodgates open. They can suppress them if they try really, really, really hard uh, most of the time, and they are suppressed with sleep as well. Transient tic disorders are motor or focal for more than four weeks and less than a year. Chronic is uh, more than a year and either a motor or a, a vocal tic. Now, if you have motor and vocal tics for over a year, then that's simply Tourette syndrome. Uh, the onset has to be before 18 years of age, and it doesn't come on for any other real reason. And infectious, genetic, or medicine, you know, those aren't, um, you know, an underlying tic disorder. It's tics from 
and secondary cost. Uh, most ticks happen daily, fairly constant, but they do come in waves, uh, in clusters, daily, weekly, or monthly, and they can be simple or complex. And most of the time, almost all the time, these things bother the parents more than the kids. Uh, so I always like to say it has to cause impairment in function. Either they cause pain from over doing it over and over again, uh, trouble in school because they can't read because they're blinking so much or socially in middle school, they're doing things and you know, it's, they're very, very self-conscious. So to, to even put into context the parent problem, I had tics as a kid uh, and stereotypes. My son, one of my sons has tics and he used to lick his lips over and over and over again. And that's why I have Ronald McDonald there because he looked like Ronald McDonald and he did it so often they had a big red thing around his mouth. Um, and I would tell him, stop doing that. And I do this for a living and I had tics as a kid and I still can't stand when the kids do this. So, you know, I understand where the parents are coming from, but you really do have to let the kids do their tics. Um, we don't use this as much simple vocal, simple motor, complex vocal, complex motor. I'm going to gloss over it a little bit, but a simple one would be like a throat clearing for a vocal, eye blink for a mo simple motor. Complex vocal would be more of like repeating phrases over and over again. Um, coprolalia, which is what Tourette's, most people think of Tourette's, which is very unfortunate, is just shouting out uh, swear words, and it's very, very rare. Uh, on the motor component, copropraxia would be like flipping somebody off, or not really somebody, just, you know, uh, showing the middle finger over and over again. But those are very, very rare. And um, if you look at the diagnostic criteria, I actually had Tourette's when I was a kid uh, because I had them for more than a year and I had focal and motor. So, um, but I never had coprolalia and most kids never had that. So tick disorders, uh, commonly, uh, well, it, was a, it is a common condition uh, really first recognized in the 30s, uh, but it affects so many kids. It's highly heritable, but with incomplete penetrance. And usually the neurobehavioral diagnoses like tics, OCD, ADHD, anxiety, depression, sensory integration disorder, you have one kid with tics and you ask if they have a family history of tics and they say no, but then you ask them if they have anxiety, depression, ADHD, or any of the others in there. And usually the answer is yes. Uh, but there are also certainly environmental contributors. Median onset is about seven years old. old. Uh, it ranges from three to eight, and eye blinking is usually the highest on the list for motor. Vocal tics are present uh, in about 12 to 37 percent, so not certain. Motor tics definitely predominate. Um, to, usually people come into me because they thought it was something else, so they went to ophthalmology because the kids are blinking. They went to ENT because the kids are sniffing. Um, pulmonary because they think they have asthma. Uh, there's all sorts of different things, which is always good to rule out. Uh, and I don't know if I'll get into it as much, but if you have a tick disorder, you're very suggestible. So if you have dry eyes, then you are usually going to have a blinking tick. But if the dry eyes go away, you still have the blinking tick. So it's good to take care of that dry eyes or any other triggers. Um, the peak of symptoms usually happen in the second decade. Uh, the uh, puberty is a wild card that just 
can set people off. It could make the ticks go away almost overnight. Uh, it's very uh, variable. And usually after puberty, there's a marked reduction by the end of adolescence to um, either no ticks or you know, very, very manageable ticks. Uh, most ticks go under recognized, about 33% don't recognize their ticks. And they think that this, what, why are ticks happening? It's an imbalance between the thalamocortical pathways, which are the primitive or habitual pathways and the cortical striatal, which are higher order pathways. And it's like a mismatch between the two. Transient ticks uh, affect about 20% or one in five kids in their lifetime. Uh, five to six are rated as problematic. 3% have chronic ticks at, in the end. And Tourette syndrome, depending on the study, uh, is usually between one to 3% of kids have Tourette syndrome. Uh, probably higher because uh, even my patients, I usually call them chronic and vocal motor, chronic motor and vocal tick disorder rather than Tourette's. A, I explained that to the families, but there's a very negative stigma attached to Tourette's. Um, as I mentioned before, comorbid symptoms, ADHD happens in 60 to 80% of kids with ticks. Uh, OCD, 50%, I think it's probably a little bit higher. Um, anxiety, depression, migraine, all higher than the general population. Uh, now ticks, uh, the lay term is nervous ticks. Um, that's because when kids get really worked up or because they have underlying anxiety too, they have a lot more ticks, but they are different parts of the brain. So it's not really that the anxiety is causing the ticks. It's just that those areas of the brain are connected. Uh, sleep disturbances happen very frequently with ticks, um, sensory integration disorder, learning disabilities, and autism uh, can happen uh, at a higher frequency in kids that have ticks. So Tourette's syndrome, as I mentioned, it's motor and vocal ticks for over a year. Uh, and this can be quite problematic. Now I'm gonna, hopefully the sound works because I fixed it this morning. False, can you tell us why? What kids deal with. Hi. Cook, ready to say cook. Right, next one. I've got used to it. Uh, most people in my classes have got used to it maybe laugh at some of the things it says sometimes, but everybody ignores it, you know, as if it was like the wind or something like that, something significant. Right, hold your cards up quickly, please. Hold Chicken! It hold it up, come on, who's not making a decision? You're wrong. Right, again. <laughs> it is true. Am I still presenting? No, okay. So, um, so that was Tourette syndrome, as you can imagine, for a teenager to deal with that. That would be very, very difficult. Um, for ticks uh, and Tourette's, the workup, a detailed history and exam are uh, necessary. Um, video is always helpful. So I ask families, you know, if they're making a movement or a sound, just try to, um, uh, you know, videotape them for a few seconds and bring it in because it's really helpful to characterize if they're going to sit in the exam room and they don't want to do the ticks or suppress the ticks and that, you know, it doesn't help me figure out what, if it's a tick or something else. 
Uh, you always screen for medications, supplements, any changes in sleep, diet, or stress that may be augmenting the ticks to come out. Standard imaging studies are uh, all normal, uh, so we don't usually order them unless there's a reason to. Uh, neuropsychological testing can help if uh, significant attention, OCD, or school-related things are uh, maybe at play as well. And specialized neuroimaging like PET and SPECT uh, are used on a research basis and have yielded some subtle and variable results, but I think will be important to help figure out the uh, treatment strategy in the future. Differential diagnosis, you wanna make sure that they're not twitching because they're seizing or having myoclonic jerks. Uh, you wanna see if it's dystonia, uh, startle or hyperapexia, uh, akathisia, or any other of the movement disorders, or if they have tics, but due to some other uh, genetic disorders that where tics can come up, trauma, infection, iatrogenic, endocrine, or other disorders. So here's a few where they can either be uh, mimickers of tics or actually have tics, but because of a different disorder. Uh, one of the areas of research I have and slightly controversial is PANS or pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome. Um, it used to be called, or this strep variant is called pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with strep or PANDAS. Um, and this is an acute out of nowhere, dramatic onset of OCD and uh, restricted food intake with at least two of the following anxiety emotional ability, irritability, behavioral regression, a sudden deterioration, and motor or sensory abnormalities. That's where the tics comes in. And then somatic signs uh, with sleep disturbances. So um, th this is an entity that's really hard to classify once we have a better understanding of how to diagnose it, like uh, Sydenham's chorea with uh, um, you know, uh, rheumatic fever, then I think it'll gain more ground and better understanding. So the treatment guidelines, uh, this is published by the AAN in 2019. Uh, for mild ticks, nothing. Uh, you educate the family, reassure them, counsel them, give supportive care, but you don't really want to treat with uh, intensive therapy or medication if you don't have to. Um, so we have HRT and CBIT for therapy, uh, some dopamine depleting drugs. I'm gonna go through those in a little bit. There's also Botox and deep brain stimulation. Uh, the duration of therapy is usually until about adolescence, but if there's any good downtime, meaning symptoms are under control, then you can scale back the therapy. And when they get bad, put more therapy on. Um, so that's how we usually do it, but there's no real good time to stop. Now, this is off-label use alpha-adrenergic agonists, but if you talk to most movement disorder doctors, they use these frontline because one, they have a pretty good side effect profile, and two, they're used to treat the other comorbid conditions with uh, ticks. So um, uh, guanfacine activates postsynaptic prefrontal alpha-adrenergic receptors and clonidine activates presynaptic. Uh, receptors in the locus ceruleus, which decreases norepine release. Now, these can make you tired. Uh, they can give you postural hypotension. They were blood pressure medicines by make way back. And uh, if you had a really high dose, you could prolong the QT interval, I guess, but that doesn't usually happen. 
helpful for people with tics uh, and ADHD for sure for kids with rage attacks or impulse control problems. In fact, I affectionately refer to it as a chill pill. So that's, I say, like this is just going to kind of put a, a top, a, a lid on the tics, on the behaviors, on the lack of inattention. Um, so it's a good medicine to start out with, but again, not FDA approved. The FDA approved medicines first line are the anti-dopaminergic drug therapies. So these block D2 receptors, uh, presynaptic D2 receptors, and um, cause a decreased dopamine response for Tourette's syndrome and tics. Haloperidol or Haldol, Pimazide and Aripiprazole are all approved by the FDA. However, most people start out with Risperidone, which is very much like Haloperidol. So it's off-label again, I just want full disclosure, but we do use a lot of Risperidone more than Haloperidol. I think the um, side effect profile is a little bit more favorable for Risperidone. But these medicines certainly do work. They just have a lot of side effects, weight gain, metabolic abnormalities. I've had people have to go on metformin because they get like diabetes from this stuff. I mean, it's they're bad for some people. Can cause a little sedation, sleep disturbances, ED, and depression. So you have to watch out for those things. Um, now, newer and FDA approved are the VMAT2 inhibitors. Now, these medicines are great. Um, as in the previous slide here, you can see VMAT2 on the, uh, over on the right-hand side here. Uh, so it reduces the amount of uh, monoamines that go into synaptic vesicles. So dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, and histamine. Now, tetrabenazine is the one that we use most often because it's the cheapest. And cheapest, I mean about $5,000 a year as opposed to do tetrabenazine and valbenazine, which are, I think, on the order of ten dollars to $15,000 a year. So there's a controversy of whether one's better than the other, but these medicines overall are generally better than your Risperdone, Haldol, Pimazide, uh, and Abilify, Aripiprazole. So pyramate, I haven't had much success with it, but it is approved, and uh, there's evidence from some small studies that show benefits um, one larger Chinese study had non-inferiority to Haldol. Um, now it does have multiple mechanisms of option action, uh, probably through AMPA blockade, but you know, it, there's, uh, other mechanisms and other side effects with topiramate. In fact, we call it Dopamax. Um, so because kids get dopey on it, they have cognitive fogginess, weight loss, and paresthesias, all sorts of things especially at higher doses. Botox, these are for more focal uh, ticks, so they are an option. I'm going to breeze through this because I have a bit more to get through, but you can use it for, uh, for focal ticks that are problematic. Um, the prognosis for these are usually a third resolve completely. A third decrease, especially after adolescence, but they're there, but don't interfere with lifestyle. And then about a third have persistent ticks that go into adulthood that would be, I guess, noticeable. Usually not as bad as you know early childhood, but certainly uh, adults do have ticks as well. Um, many adults with childhood onset uh, Tourette syndrome believe that they become free of ticks. 
but they do still have them, which is very interesting. And I've seen this firsthand. And I always think to myself, am I still ticking? So maybe I was doing it the entire <laughs> uh, presentation and I just don't recognize it. Um, it is a significant burden because eight to 11% of people with ticks will at some point have suicidal ideation. And this is very serious. And I think it's overlooked because it's a transient thing. And uh, I don't know, I think it just gets overlooked a lot and it can be pretty, uh, pretty much of a big burden for kids. And I, I throw this in just as a little uh, aside, um, interesting, you know, there's very famous people that have Tourette syndrome, Howie Mandel, classically, and he's known for his OCD, but he does have tics. Uh, old Mark Summers, I think probably the residents don't remember Mark Summers, uh, Nickelodeon, but um, yeah, he, he was famous. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, uh, David Beckham, Mozart, that's uh, speculated. And then Tim Howard is very famous and he has a documentary uh, film and a book and everything. So I usually point people towards Tim Howard's stuff and I love soccer. Uh, now, stereotypies. Um, this is fun because um, I'm the guy right there. This is my family, my dad in the middle, my two sisters and my brother, and my brother is right there. Now, the two of us had stereotypies when we were kids, so we had a lot of them. My brother in particular was super annoying and he rocked and rocked and rocked. Now it's associated with a lot of things, um, learning disorder primarily and um, autism. I don't think I have a learning disorder or autism. And I don't think my brother does either. Uh, so I like to stress that people, normal people can have stereotypes too because everybody thinks that their kid has autism when they start clapping. So uh, you can have repetitive chewing movements, flapping, rocking, muscle clenching, uh, twirling. 90% uh, of people had it daily, usually multiple times a day. Uh, and episodes will range less than 10 seconds to greater than 60 seconds. Uh, usually around eight years of age is when it happens, starts around three. So the time frame is similar to ticks and usually triggered by excitement. Uh, boredom, I guess, being focused or engrossed or anxiety and stress. Excitement is a big one, at least, uh, you know, you get a kid that will be like, we're going for ice cream. And they're like, yeah, you know, and they just start flapping. So um, that, that is usually what you see. Uh, comorbid with ADHD, 25% of the time, learning, 20, uh, learning disability, 20% of the time. And there's a positive family history in uh, at least a quarter. Um, now, resolution happens in 5%, improvement in 33, static in 50, or worsening in 13. I don't see much worsening after adolescence again. I really haven't, um, except for maybe some autistic kids that still will spin or flap. You can use dopamine receptor blockers, such as tetrabenazine, just like the other um, treatments for tics. And uh, risperidone is also quite uh, helpful for stereotypies and, as well as self-injurious behavior with autism. So here's an, let me highlight, it's a normal kid, girl that has stereotypies that she's like playing with her friend and then does this. And if you look on YouTube, she does that particular movement over and over again. And sometimes goes into a fit where she does it like, for 20 seconds and she just kind of like stuck in it. But um, at, 
all the rest of the time, completely normal tween or teen, however you look at it. So, all right. So Rett syndrome, stereotypies is classically associated with Rett and autism. Now, Rett syndrome, as you, as a quick review, usually it happens from a de novo genetic mutation of the XP28 leading to a faulty MECP2 protein. This is usually a missense, nonsense, or frame shift. And if you are at all interested in genetics leading to new treatments and some really cool research, I would look, I put this YouTube in there. I know it's a bunch of letters and symbols, but if you have access to my talk, I highly recommend that video on YouTube. It's so interesting uh, what they're doing and uh, the science is just great. And so great explanation. So RET happens in about one in 10,000 to 20,000 girls. Uh, clinical signs show up between six to 18 months and usually microcephaly, which really ends up being like their head just stops growing and the body keeps growing. So they have a relative microcephaly, but it's progressive language regression is, is very characteristic. Once you hit that threshold with the NECP2 protein and you start um, having the problems associated with a faulty protein, then you have regression and movement disorders usually upper extremity more than lower extremity. They can have bruxism, like clenching of the teeth, oculogenic crisis, dystonia, and all of those other things. Seizures actually can happen uh, a little bit later on in the, in the process, but they do happen. Uh, most kids get diagnosed with RET and autism, and they can have cardiac, sleep, breathing, and autonomic dysfunction as well. And again, this is a little... Uh, visual of Rett syndrome is a girl she gets kind of excited and then she does her flapping and then waddles away like an old man there we go so that's uh Rhett. now uh case actually case number two and k this is a patient of mine when i was a fellow and uh, he's a 30 13 year old caucasian male that had twitching uh, and when you hear twitching, you're like, hmm, is this ticks? Uh, maybe it is, maybe it's not. He had two to three weeks of twitching, uh, whole body restlessness. Uh, he became increasingly bothersome to him, but he didn't have any other symptoms. And the parents say he's more irritable. He was a very laid back kid, but they do say he was more irritable and he did not have any head injury. But when we asked them, a further question, he did have a runny nose, sore throat, and low-grade fever a few weeks before the rash, uh, with a rash, and they thought he had a mild uh, upper respiratory illness that self-resolved. So he was pleasant, very pleasant, very nice kid, um, and huge Phillies and Eagles fan because I was down in Philadelphia, and um, really normal exam, a little bit brisker, D DTRs, mildly increased tone but was noticeable was in involuntary movements of the proximal joints and riding movements of the distal extremities. So uh, I'll show you a quick video here. This is not, uh, pay attention to his right hand. And we just told him sit still and just, I'm chit-chatting with him about the Eagles, the audio's off, but I'm just sitting there and like, you know, don't move around. And it's like his hand kind of has a mind of its own. Now this is subtle, but it's very, very characteristic. And I'm, I'll show you a different video oh, in, in, I think, the next slide. Uh, so we did this and we said, okay, this is the workup. We did lab work 
and these are all normal. Then we get an ASO and an anti-DNA speed that are three, four, or five times normal. ANA was normal, said rate was normal, CRP, right? Yeah, that's normal. Okay, so Sydenham's Korea. With those lab results and the movement, we diagnose Sydenham's Korea. So it's a, the Korea is an ongoing random appearing sequence of one or more involuntary movements. First described as St. Vitus's dance uh, in the 1400s. It's actually an interesting story. I don't have time to go into it, but it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, they didn't start realizing that it was an autoimmune related problem until about 1956. Uh, it is associated with acute rheumatic fever and the Sydenham's Korea and acute rheumatic fever have declined dramatically in, in the early 20th century due to cleaning living conditions and antibiotics. But in 2006, they took a study of 144 uh, consecutive kids that came in with acute onset Korea and 96% of them were still Sydenham's Korea. So it's still happening. If you see Korea in a kid, you should definitely think Sydenham's Korea. Uh, most commonly starts five to 13 years of age. Uh, they are associated with cardiomyopathy and arthritis with uh, rheumatic fever. Those typically present about 21 days out, uh, but the chorea can be one to eight months after the infection. So you have to really be savvy to that. Females are more affected than males and less common to have chorea as an adult with rheumatic fever than with kids. Um, so here's the same type of situation. You can see this kid kind of just wiggling, twitching, and you tell them to sit still, they can't sit still. They're doing this when you tell them to sit still. So, you know, uh, very like rhythmic movements, um, kind of dance-like, which is where Korea got the name. Um, you also can have aphitosis and ballism. Aphitosis is the writhing part of it. Ballism is more of a large amplitude chorea, uh, usually affecting proximal musculature rather than distal. So here's an aphitosis for you, uh, a hemi-aphitosis. So, you know, a woman, hold your hands out, keep them still. The left one there is just writhing, right? It just like looks like uh, a writhing movement. <laughs> Um, and then this is hemibolism from a stroke in a woman where she has left-sided hemibolism, arm and leg moving, the right one. The only reason the right one's moving is because the left one's moving so much. So good control, right side, left side. This woman might poke out an eye. This is dangerous. So th those are along the same lines, chorea, aphitosis, and ballism. So uh, chorea, as I already mentioned, uh, with Sydenham's chorea, you have the chorea, but you also have emotional ability. You can also have hypotonia, although my previous patient had hypertonia. Uh, typically worsens over hours to days once it starts, and the symptoms are continuous while awake, worsen with attempted action, but do improve with sleep. Uh, generalized chorea uh, is typical, but you can have hemichorea with Sydenham's chorea. Uh, usually Sydenham's chorea associated with a variety of psychiatric symptoms, irritability, emotional ability, outbursts, uh, OCD and distractibility. My patient 
was one of the most chill kids you'd ever meet. And the parents said they noticed, but he still seemed very uh, calm to me. Uh, and diagnostic evaluation, you want to look for uh, group A strep infection. So you do a throat culture, you do some lab work. Uh, all patients should have a detailed cardiac exam. Neuroimaging doesn't usually help out. You can do some functional imaging in hard cases, but usually you don't need it. Uh, with atypical features, you should get a CSF analysis if you have continued fever or delirium with it and PEC or SPECT, uh, usually used in research. So treatment is very similar with the movement disorders, Haldol, Pinzide, Fufenazine for dopamine uh, receptor blockers. Alternatives have been used, Keppra, uh, Tegretol, Depakote, the anti-seizure medicines can help out. Also the alpha-2 agonists and benzodiazepine and diphenhydramine um, can help with acesthesia and dystonia that can also be associated. Um, moderate to severe cases, acutely you could use uh, steroids or IVIG since it is an autoimmune disorder. And um, in 37 kids and adolescents randomly assigned to placebo or prednisone, um, usually the prednisone helps them recover quicker, but doesn't change the prognosis overall. The main thing that changes the prognosis is uh, penicillin. So kids that have rheumatic fever with uh, Korea, you need to be on penicillin pretty much until 21, unless they were 18 when they got it. If they didn't have carditis, so rheumatic fever minus carditis, five years or until 21. So if they're 18, you do 18 plus five. Uh, rheumatic fever plus carditis, 10 years until 21. And if you have alveolar diseases until 40 and the recurrence of this, it does happen. So they have to stay compliant this is a study down here that showed people aren't compliant. So Sinham's Korea prognosis, usually it improves over 12 to 15 weeks. You have full recovery most, um, but the symptoms can persist. Uh, usually recurs in 15 to 30%, especially if they're not compliant. Um, and usually with repeat group A strep since it's so ubiquitous. Uh, I think I'm gonna skip over I want to touch on dystonia. I've got like two or three minutes, so I'll just go through these. Um, dystonia is a twisting movement, uh, a contracture of uh, uh, opposite muscles, like uh, you know, flexing and extension muscles. So you will have um, some movements that are usually patterned, repetitive of opposing muscles, and sometimes it can hurt. Uh, when it first appears, they usually look like an involuntary movement, but it can progress and sort of ripen over time. Uh, generalized dystonia indicates involvement of one or both legs, the trunk, and some other part of the body, whereas a single body part affected is usually a focal dystonia. Just uh, writer's cramp is the most common dystonia. Uh, usually doesn't happen in kids too much. Uh, blepharospasm, dysphonia, spasmodic dysphonia, or spasmodic torticollis um, is very common too, mostly in adults. In kids, we have Sagawa syndrome uh, named in 1976. That's an autosomal dominant disorder that is DOPA responsive. So that's the big part of Sagawa syndrome. Uh, classically, it's a GTP psychohydrolase deficiency that decreases the enzyme for biosynthesis of tetrahydro 
tetrahydrobiopterin. Um, so they have dystonia, dopamine responsive, lots of uh, psychiatric things as well. So now Sagawa syndrome is synonymous with dopa responsive dystonia. So if we do dystonia kids, this actually gets pretty technical. So if you have a dystonia, you know, ticks may be able to be treated by pediatricians, you know, several tick disorders. Dystonia gets a little bit complicated. And I think if you see any kids with dystonia, you should definitely come to neurology or hopefully the movement disorder center that I uh, am trying to set up. Um, so dystonia, I, I'm switching a little bit to cerebral palsy. Uh, most of you know CP, but it's because uh, of you know, a few slides later. Um, so CP is a heterogeneous group of conditions. Most people think of uh, spastic CP or hypertonic CP, but you can have dystonic, hypotonic, uh, chorea associated with CP and aphetosis and ataxia. So these all uh, are conditions due to abnormalities of the developing fetal brain. Um, variety of etiologies can cause it. Uh, it's not progressive, but the movements can change over time as the brain matures. Uh, multiple additional symptoms may or may not be present, um, including sens sensory, intellectual disability, uh, behavioral difficulties, seizures, and musculoskeletal complications. So can happen from stroke or jaundice. And the reason I'm putting this in, uh, I won't go through the treatments, is because of jaundice and conicterus. Um, the exact pathogenesis is unclear, but things must happen. One, you have to have high bilirubin. You have to have a reduced bilirubin binding capacity, which happens more often in preterm neonates. You have to have a breakdown of the blood brain barrier, and then you have the bilirubin go in and cause the brain damage, but it's a se uh, sequence of events that have to happen. This doesn't usually happen in adults. This in kids that have an, uh, no albumin, it doesn't happen, which I don't really understand. There's something about bilirubin binding to albumin to get into across the blood brain barrier. But what you see is, you know, damage to the basal ganglia, globus pallidus here, right? You can see it in here and you will get dystonia from these things. And I just saw this, like, this just reminds me, you have eyebrows, nose, evil mustache. I just can't not see Jafar from Aladdin in that MRI. So I, I wanted to put that in. Uh, Cernicterus, uh, usually the kids will have uh, jaundice. They become drowsy day of two to three. Monotonous cry, hypotonia, some fever and yellowing of the skin. 10% uh, of neonates who develop cernicterus don't have any physical signs, which is scary that that number is that high. By two weeks of age, they usually develop hypertonia, epistotonus and severe muscle spasm and later dystonia. So um, keep this in mind that dystonia can come from this. Uh, we have torticollis, which is a dystonia in the neck muscle, uh, not necessarily a dystonia, but a, a spasm. Um, this is usually evident by two to four weeks of age, but definitely by one to six months. Um, and you'll see a, a head tilt due to shortening of the sternocleidomastoid on one side. Uh, many times they'll be associated with plagiocephaly and these uh, higher incidence of this happening in the firstborn child. If there's decreased fetal movement or illegal hydramnios, a breach presentation, 
uh, the sternocleidomastoid can get dinged up from a forceps or vacuum assisted delivery. So it's more common there. Multiple gestations when the kids are kind of cramped. Uh, increased birth weight or length, again, maybe cramped inside and uh, lack of time in the prone position. So tummy time is very important. There tends to be a family history. Um, uh, so keep that in mind. And males have it 1.5 times compared to one for females. Uh, spasmus nutans, uh, nystagmus head nodding and torticollis. I'm running out of time. So I will show you maybe one, this is a cool video, an old one of spasmus nutans. And I have two other things, but I think we're gonna run out of time and just do some questions. You could see the nystagmus and you have really not great head control. It kind of wiggles back and forth. It's a classic video for spasmus nutans. I'll have to do another talk. I mean, I've got so much material for, for these movement disorders. Um, yeah, do one tremor and then shuddering attacks. This kid's really cute. Let me just show you this one and then I'll leave it off for questions. So that's a shudder attack, All right? Kids happy. I think it's a precursor to stereotypies. Kids getting ready and just goes, uh, right? So those behaviors right there, those are shuddering attacks. Completely benign. A lot of times we get EEGs because people are concerned they're seizures, but that's a benign condition. So summary, there's a lot of different hyperkinetic movement disorders, a very diverse set of conditions in childhood from a variety of different etiologies, the diagnosis, prognosis, treatments, different across the different movement disorders, um, including medicine and non-medicine options. We very quickly went through uh, a lot of them, but there are more. There's mimickers. I've got lots of great examples of hyperkinetic mimickers and then the hypokinetic movement disorders and ataxia and coordination. I'll have to do at a different time, but thank you for your attention. And I guess I have to hit stop share. There you go, Billy. Uh, thank you very much. Boy, that was a tour de force of, uh, of movement disorders. Certainly very helpful to us in infectious disease since we, uh, we end up seeing many of the kids with, with PANS or PANDAS because of the association with group-based strep. And there, there are always questions from all our pediatricians about this. Uh, so really, really appreciate it. So Billy, we have a, a, a number of questions uh, from uh, our, my colleague, Dr. Cohen. Absolutely great presentation. Could you please put to rest the myth between the use of stimulants for ADHD and their contraindication to use in patients with known ticks or if a new tick appears during their use? So yes, um, the, that's actually, I, I believe relatively newer literature and say that the ticks, um, using stimulants in people with ticks is contraindicated. It's not contraindicated. Um, in fact, many times it's necessary because these kids that are twitching and ticking all the time have very horrible ADHD and they need uh, you know, help. And there's, you can start out with non-stimulants, but uh, many times I do use stimulants. So I wouldn't, I would warn the families that it, it could be augmented, but usually it's not. In fact, sometimes I've had ticks improve because the schooling improves. So it's not contraindicated. 
another question, uh, great talk. Uh, can you comment on CBIT? Uh, I have several patients with tics that are looking for that resource, but it is very hard to find. So this is the I think this is the cognitive behavioral interventions uh, that are so useful. Yeah, uh, yes, the CBIT is um, highly useful. Uh, it uh, encompasses uh, the HRT with some extra components. So the kids will learn their um, promontory urge and then have other outlets for it. You can't just stifle these movements, you need to divert them. And that's what the therapy really does. Uh, at last I checked, there was maybe two people. Uh, one person was at Yale uh, in the child study center. They are very hard to get in with. There was another person in uh, New York that was about 45 minutes from where I am in Western Connecticut. So it, CBIT trained practitioners are in high demand, uh, highly needed, and hopefully we can I, I'm trying to convince people to get the training. It's a two-day training, two or three-day training, a few, some paperwork. It's not extensive, but would be highly helpful for these kids. Scherzer, can you comment on the link of initiating stimulant for ADHD and the onset of tick disorders? I guess that's sort of a similar question to Dr. Cohen's. Yeah, um, if you start, I've had this uh, come up a few times where you're treating ADHD, the ticks just don't come up, uh, but then you put the stimulant on and the kid does get a tick when you start the stimulant. Uh, I would say it's probably not getting the tick and almost always I really dig and find that they've had some form of ticks to begin with. So um, the, that's a, always a longer conversation I have with the parents, but it's not like giving them a new condition. It's something that's highly associated with ADHD that kind of comes along and it's a possible side effect with stimulant medication, but not uh, uh, guaranteed. And like I said, I have actually had several patients that had a lot of ticks that went on stimulant medication and got better with the ticks. So um, it's just one of those possibilities, just like getting a headache medicine you know, side effects says headache and they get more headaches on the headache medicine. So it happens. Great. And um, comment from Dr. Machado. Thank you, Billy. Excellent talk. I appreciate it. Uh, and we certainly, we certainly all do. So uh, this uh, presentation, by the way, is uh, recorded. So you will be able to watch it. I think this is going to be one of the classic ones that people will go back. This is a great one for residents, for fellows. Uh, for new attendings to really refer to a, an outstanding uh, presentation. So, so Billy, thank you very much for your uh, your uh, willingness to step in. I know we we tapped on you at the the last moment, but uh, it certainly looks like you have been working on this one for about two years. So it's a fantastic presentation, really great, really appreciate it. For everyone, uh, please uh, stay safe. Uh, we we don't have a, a meeting this Friday, so we will miss you this Friday. And I know Dr. Schreiber will miss you this Friday. He'll come back, uh, uh, I believe, two weeks from uh, from uh, last Friday, uh, and then this coming Friday we we don't we don't see you on Tuesday. Uh, the first we have our resident award presentations to uh, to faculty. We also have the presentation of the Leon Commodities Award. So please do join us. It is not a CME event, but it is a fun event and it's a recognition to the faculty from the residents. Um, and and then eventually we'll have the residents recognition during graduation. So thank you again. Be safe. Take care. We'll see you again. Bye-bye.